The White House has hosted a long list of indecent occupants. It must be hard being a deviant and leading a nation under the watchful eye of America. I'm sure no man with hot blood coursing through their veins and lust burning in their belly would or could enjoy life in the Oval Office. And so you seek pleasure in the shadows under the cover of darkness. But silly men, they forget that everything comes to light. And that means I get to tell you all of their dirty little secrets. Welcome to Deviant History, where our curiosities take us back in time to uncover our salacious past in the beginning of something deviant. I'm your host, Alexandra Noel. I want to take you back to the early 1900s and the beginning of Prohibition. Your president is Warren G. Harding. He secured a record-breaking victory and made history as the first to broadcast a presidential message over the radio. He was a boozer and a gambler. He smoked cigarettes and served bootleg liquor to his White House guests, and he loved to write smutty love notes to his mistresses. But mostly, he liked to fuck. It's a good thing I'm not a woman. I would always be pregnant. I can't say no. Those being his words. Warren's two publicly known affairs came to light in 1927 and then again in 1963, both equally scandalous. Nan Britton, a young lover of Warren's, was first introduced when she was in high school. They share the same hometown of Marion, Ohio. At this point, Warren is working his campaign trail for senator and stops in town for a press conference. Her father was good friends with the senator and invites Warren to their home as a favor, knowing how much his daughter admired Warren. So much so that her most beloved possession was the photo of him hanging on her bedroom wall. Nan fawns over Warren's every word. The visit lasts less than an hour and Nan spends most of the time in deep political conversation. He compliments her character and calls her bright. The family thanks the senator for his time and Nan Britton spends the next four years daydreaming of the day she sees her hero again. Nan, now 20 years old, is attending college in New York City and working part-time at a department store. Wanting to better her situation, she writes Warren asking him if he remembers her and the visit to her home. She continues with hopes that he would write a letter of recommendation or help with placing her somewhere with higher pay and better benefits. He writes her back immediately with sweet sentiments of very fond remembrance. He says he will be in New York within the next two weeks and would love to meet with her and better understand her skills. Warren instructs her of when and where their meeting will take place. They say their hellos in the lounge of this ritzy hotel, and after getting the initial greetings in and some small talk about his campaign, Warren suggests they get a room to talk more privately about her professional skills. Now, keep in mind, Warren was already married and having an affair with another woman. Nan gladly agrees. 
The two make their way to the front desk where Warren introduces Nan as his niece. He asks for the honeymoon suite and Nan is gushing with delight that he thinks she's so special he reserved that room for her. As they ride the elevator up to their suite, Warren starts the interview. He asks if she can dictate and how many words per minute she can type. Nan confesses her clerical skills are poor and she has very little experience. Upon entering their suite, Warren removes his coat, finding an armchair. He sits and watches Nan as she tours the rooms in wonderment, never seeing anything so grand. He motions for her to come over, and once she is in reach, pulls her into his lap. Now Nan genuinely wants Warren's help with the job placement, but she also gets off to this man. She has no problem sinking deep into his lap. However, the moment his hands begin to explore, she stops him promptly, suggesting they continue their interview. Warren indulges the protest, escorting her to the desk where the complimentary typewriter and papers sit, waiting for use. He tells her they will begin by practicing her dictation. He directs Nan to take down this letter. He begins with, to my dearest darling Nan. Nan's cheeks flush a deep pink and she had stars in her eyes. Warren taking great satisfaction at the sight of this beautiful young woman, so obviously eager, continues with his make-believe letter growing more erotic with every word. She leaves him with only a kiss and a little heavy petting. Three days later, Nan receives another letter from Warren and it's 40 pages. He writes of devotion and lusty cravings and with great sympathy wishes if she should find herself needing a little spending money to turn to him first. And she doesn't hesitate. At her first request, he wires her $40. That's the equivalent of $1,700 today. Also within this letter, of course, is her beaming recommendation of outstanding clerical skills and that he would indeed hire her himself if his secretarial position wasn't already filled. Nan and Warren's correspondence is increasing in numbers rapidly, as well as their visits, and always in big cities with lots of faces like New York or DC, where even a senator can go unnoticed. The same scenario too, checking her in as his niece, lavishing her with expensive sweets, and now gifts of fine jewelry and shopping sprees. Nan, oh Nan, she taunts and teases, getting close but never close enough for his likes. She fondly referred to these getaways as their kissing tours. Then one day it was more than kissing and Nan fell pregnant. Warren moves her into a lovely apartment where he visits her fairly often. Their affair continued until his presidency where she would visit him at the White House on several occasions and some accounts say their go-to spot for quickie sessions was a closet in the Oval Office. Nan went away to give birth in secret to a baby girl named Elizabeth, and this was the beginning of the end. Warren never saw his child, and their relationship ended. Nan was crushed. 
Warren provided substantial sums in child support that were hand-delivered by the Secret Service. But when he died suddenly, the payments stopped. Nan went to the courts and sued Warren's estate to secure a trust for Elizabeth, but lost. And in response, she writes the world's first tell-all book, titled The President's Daughter. It was an instant hit, selling 90,000 copies. The backlash was fierce. She was called a liar, a pervert, and a slut, absolutely dragged through the mud. Nan, unwavering in her convictions, is compelled to advocate for single mothers everywhere in a time where it was difficult to prove the father of your child. And almost 100 years later, her great-grandson and a great-nephew of Warren test their DNA, and the results? A match. It wasn't until 1963 when Warren's dirty letters to Carrie Fulton Phillips surfaced that we get a little more insight into his real kinks. Carrie is his wife's best friend. Their affair lasts well over a decade and is woven in blackmail, German spies, lust, and scandal. But at one time, Warren was completely obsessed with Carrie. Letter after letter containing passionate desires and not of his needs, but of Jerry's. And who is Jerry? Well, that would be his member. Yes, Jerry tells Warren what to write. It appears it's actually Warren with the dictation skills. And Jerry is quite the romantic. Allow me to share with you in a deviant history first, letters from a cock. Jerry, you recall Jerry, whose cards I once sent you to Europe, came in while I was pondering your notes in glad reflection, and we talked about it. He was strongly interested and elated and clung to discussion. He told me to say that you are the best and most darlingest in the world, and if he could have but one wish, it would be to be held in your darling embrace and be thrilled by your pink lips that convey the surpassing rapture of human touch and unspeakable joy of love's surpassing embrace. How sweet of Jerry to send her a photograph for when she begins to miss him deeply. And Jerry wouldn't dare to miss out on spreading Christmas cheer. He wrote to Carrie in a Christmas card. Jerry sends you Christmas greetings. He would come too if I might. Would he be welcome cordially? Wish I could take you to Mount Jerry this time of year. Wonderful spot. Can you see it now? The snow caps on Mount Jerry at Christmas time. Very merry indeed. And I saved my favorite for last. Jerry came and he will not go. Says he loves you that you are the only love worthwhile in all this world. And I must tell you so, and a score or more of other fond things he suggests, but I spare you. You must not be annoyed. He is so utterly devoted, he only exists to give you all. Now that is my love language. Another president that nicknamed their dick, Lyndon Johnson. Apparently, it was extremely large, and Lyndon, being quite the exhibitionist, 
and a rather crude man. He wanted people to know. He slung that thing all over the White House in the presence of staff and journalists, always asking, have you ever seen anything as big as this? And what else would you name your incredibly big dick other than Jumbo? When probed on the continuation of the Vietnam War, Lyndon asked all the women to leave the room, then pulled Jumbo out and yelled, this is why, and shook it at them in anger. It wasn't limited to just the White House. During his presidential campaign, Lyndon invited a few reporters aboard the Air Force One to host a news conference, and it got a little weird. Lyndon is just standing there in his underwear when the Q&A begins, and he strips the last piece of clothing, and nobody bats an eye. They continue on like this didn't just happen. And when Lady Bird returned from her honeymoon, the first thing she did was make an appointment with her gyno with concerns of fit issues. So like, what is it? Nine inches? 10? 11? I'm shocked he didn't share that part. My curiosities get the best of me and I kind of want to know. Lyndon was known to be promiscuous, as well as bragging that he'd had sex with more women than John F. Kennedy, and that is a bold statement. But it doesn't get kinkier than this. It's 1998. It was the scandal that rocked the American nation. Never in history has a president's affairs seen the mass coverage in mainstream news quite like Bill Clinton. The country demanded answers. How could they allow the leader of the free world get away with receiving a handjob under the Oval Office desk? They couldn't. And they also couldn't believe it when Bill maintained that he did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, a White House intern. But I, for one, believe him. You see, Bill's idea of sexual relations is firmly penetration. I don't think he and Monica ever took that plunge. Perhaps Bill was terrified of a pregnancy scare and didn't want to dip his toes in that. So they got creative and he came everywhere except there. The trash can, bathroom sink, her mouth, the blue dress. But I'm not here for the finger bangs and the blowjobs. I like it a little more deviant. On one encounter, after Monica finishes Bill off in the Oval Office's restroom, they return to his desk. Spent, he lays back in his chair. Monica sits on his desk and pulls a cigar from a box. Bill begins rolling the cigar in his fingers, lost in deep thought. He brings the tip to his teeth, getting a taste with his tongue, and a devilish grin grows across his face. Monica observed this fantasy developing in his mind and somehow knew exactly what he was thinking and casually said, we can do that too sometime. Less than a month later, Monica makes the cigar dreams come true. Under the pretense of delivering very important documents to the president, it grants her private access to him in a secluded White House study. They find themselves once again engaged in their lusty pursuits. Hiding behind a sprawling bookcase, Bill and Monica embrace. He leaves a trail of kisses as he kneels in front of Monica, pushing the hem of her dress above her hips. And then, 
He pulls a fine cigar from his shirt pocket and begins to pleasure Monica until he finishes on the White House floor. Bill is beaming with pride, wasting no time placing it between his lips, complimenting how it enhances the cigar's flavor. He puts it back in his pocket to let it dry and savors it another time. Now, if you will excuse me while I go buy my husband a cigar. Please join me next week as I explore the fascinating tale about a mythical lovebird and the most beautiful woman in the world. You won't want to miss it. It's one of my favorites. If you enjoyed this episode, please show it some love, like, and share. Let me know what you think. You can find Deviant History on Facebook, TikTok, and of course, wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.